some decisions need to be made there and then, and you must live with the consequences. But there's very few decisions where you are going to make the sort of mistake where the consequences will be very high. Welcome to the So You're Vet Now What, the podcast. This is a show that serves as your audio mentor in your journey as a veterinarian. And each week, our awesome host, Dr. Mariah McCauley, will be bringing you insightful short-form interviews with happy, successful vets who are eager to share their career and clinical tips to make your life easier. So whether you're a final year vet student or a recent graduate, this podcast is your trusted companion on the pathway to success in veterinary medicine. Over to you, Mo. Welcome back to So You're a Vet. Now what? I'm your host, Dr. Mariah McCauley. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Dr. Dave Nickel as we discuss one of the greatest challenges new grads face. And this would be the mindset shift of going from a student to a veterinarian in charge. Along with a whole host of responsibilities is the fact that you are now in a position of leadership. So in today's episode, we cover how this impacts you as a new grad and what you can do to become a more effective leader in this new role. As always, I can't wait to share this episode with you, so let's jump right in. All right. Hey, guys. Welcome back to So You're a Vet. Now what? I am always excited to introduce our guest, but today we have Dr. Dave Nichols. So Dave, welcome. Whoop, whoop. Hello. <laughs> Gosh, we're dancing already. Oh, nice it's two back. seconds into the recording, we're dancing. That's how today's going to go. <laughs> let's hope it's um, recording. <laughs> <laughs> we've had that happen before. All right, so today we are talking about... Is this thing on? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So looking today, we're talking about that wonderful transition from being a veterinary student to bam, you are the veterinarian, you are in charge, you're making the decisions, you're no longer in vet school. And how do you make that transition? How do you become an effective leader? It's hard. Like there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Becoming a veterinarian is hard and changing that mentality into, hey, you are the one basically driving the ship is a tough one to grow into and to kind of develop those skills. And granted, like we never expect anyone to have all of those skills perfectly honed <laughs> on day one. That is why you need a mentor. That's why you need a community around you. And that is what we're going to talk about today. So Dave, I'm going to kind of open it up to you because I've just been shooting the breeze here for a second. Like, what have you seen in your mentees that have come through? Like, what has been that initial conversation of, hey, you're in charge now? Okay. I think there's a number of ways. I could. There is a lot. And I think there's a number of ways I could come at this. The first thing I would say is that I think I would want to add one word on there to the start. I think you're a clinical leader. And you're a micro team leader. Mm-hmm. I would probably counsel any individual away at thinking they were actually a leader because until you've really got your head around the version of leadership that is helpful, there's a bit of a chance that you turn into a giant flaming asshole because your version of leadership isn't the right version of leadership. You know, most people have not had good versions of leadership modeled. Now, I'm not going to take this off down a leadership conversation because that's for another stage of your career. But I was used to like thinking about my cases as, you know, I did my business training, used to talk about different versions of leadership. And the one that I thought chimed most with me is I was still 
probably 90, 95% clinician and 5% management at that point in time as I was doing my leadership training, my management training. And one of the models of leadership, you know, the way teams can be structured stuck out to me as very much a sort of project-based leadership. So I think that's what veterinary medicine is best thought of as, is a small project team coming together for a very small project by project management term. You know, project management, you're usually putting a group of people together for weeks, months, or years to deliver a project, think construction or something like that. No one is employed by a necessarily a company. You've got a lot of contractors come together and, and then they split up and they go work on different jobs and things like that. And veterinary medicine as a model, I think, is actually very similar to that. You're really borrowing people for a little bit of time to work on this one project. And it may not be a project that gets to completion in that moment. So you disband and then you come back together and it's probably a different little project team for round two. You know, if you think about the project team for the exam room might be a reception team member, you, the veterinarian, and then a technician assisting you in in your exam room, if you're extremely fortunate, because that's not the model lots of people have. It's just you sometimes. But you've got a little mini project team there. And then when they come back to have, let's say they're having some work done, it's a, a dental or an operation or an investigation, another little project team comes together. It's you it'll be probably a different technician at that moment in time and perhaps a a patient care assistant will be helping you at that moment. And then let's say some surgery is scheduled after that workup, it'll be a different project team. So the common thread there is you, unless it's your day off, in which case it'll be somebody else managing a little project team. And so I think as a way of thinking about, you you are involved in leading the case and certainly in giving the case direction and propelling the case forwards. And that's the big difference. I think that's the difference you're getting at when you move from being in university setting where it's the the residence problem, effectively. But they've got two problems. They've got the case problem and they've got you. (laughs) You know, once you leave, they've got another little project or problem to work on the next year students. When you get into practice, you've just got the case, but you've not got any experience or or particularly know-how and how to do it or certainly very little. So it gets a little bit harder and now it is on your shoulders. The team there, I think, is the most important part. What we all get is a really, really good education. I know that people may not feel terribly well prepared by their education, but it's not the job of education to take you out and make you competent on day one. The job of education is to take you over the line to being not monstrously, outrageously, scarily awful on day one, You don't really know what you don't know yet, but you've got a good idea what you don't know. And so you've got some guardrails there. But most importantly, what it gives you is frameworks for progressing through things. I mean, that's the most important gift that you really get. Isn't the answers or the answer to the problem. It's the framework for how you might get to an answer to the problem. If you're so lucky as to be faced with a case where there is a clear answer to the problem, because sometimes there isn't. And it's best guesswork. So... Maybe just having a mental model of, or not having the expectation that you have to know everything. And and I don't know, I'd almost depressurize it a little bit to say, you you don't have to feel like the overall leader. I know when I got into practice, I was massively reliant on the nursing staff for guidance, for instruction, for help. You know, I had my ideas about what were going on, of course. But my receptionist, even in my first job, she pointed me in the right direction and told me where to go and 
you know, she'd been in that job for, I don't know, over a decade. She knew those clients inside and out. And she knew when the animals were likely to be seriously unwell and not, because she partly knew the families. And like, oh yeah, they don't call unless there's a problem. You know, they're that sort of person. I was helped by having really good people around me and by listening to them. And I think that's job one. Whether you're clinical leadership or otherwise, I do think that's kind of job one is two ears, one mouth. Listen. Are you a new or recent veterinary graduate? If so, listen up. My course, So Your Vet, Now What? has been put together specifically for you. We focus on the non-clinical skills, don't tune out. This is not as dull as it sounds, I promise you. In fact, almost every career problem that people face are due to not having well-developed non-clinical skills. The skills that I'm talking about are things like client communication, so you have great relationships with clients. Emotional intelligence, so you've got great relationships with your teammates. Effective negotiation skills, so you can get paid what you are worth. Management of imposter syndrome and how to build formidable resilience. They're not just skills, they are prerequisites vital for success in financial and emotional well-being. This course serves as an essential stepping stone to your success. So let's take the leap together. I will be your mentor as we go through 12 modules helping you transition from being a student to being a fully rounded professional. Head to www.drdavenickel.com forward slash S-Y-A-V class to learn more. Now back to the show. No, I think there's a lot of good things to kind of pull out from what you just said there and kind of highlight a little bit more. And one of them being, of course, like looking at your what's called the support staff, the people that are around you, that community within your practice that you have where you can lean into them. Because again, you're not supposed to be the sole person in charge, the big shiny light on the top of the hill. You're literally there to, again, help facilitate everybody else to be able to do their jobs effectively as well. And of course, leaning into those nurses, into those receptionists when you are in your first year of practice is what is going to A, help shape you into an effective leader because you're not just, again, being on top. Because <laughs> again, that's like the worst model. But again, like leaning into them, looking for their advice, that's going to help grow and shape you as a leader because then you're listening to them, you're actually hearing them out, you're developing those communication skills, like really kind of breaking it down to the nitty gritty which in vet school, like you said, they're they're not supposed to teach you everything about this, but they're supposed to give you the framework so that you can, again, step into that day one and be like, okay, I have an idea of what I need to do. But again, you can lean into your mentors, you can lean into your support staff to grow and develop those skills a bit more. Because the trouble that I see, and maybe you can flesh this out a bit more with these new grads that come into practice who really, again, they haven't had a good leadership example in their lives. They don't really know what it's supposed to look like within their practice. That question then starts to become like, okay, who's really leading us? Who's guiding us here? Because you have students or new grads that really are not confident. They're mm. not making good decisions within their practice because they don't know who to go to to ask questions. And then also the support staff are kind of sitting there going, what do you want us to do? You're the doctor. Like I've had those kind of conversations with people being like, like the doctor comes over and they're like, well, I don't know, you do it. And I'm like, you are the doctor. Mm -hmm. Like 
it is your responsibility. I will help guide you in that direction, but I cannot ultimately make that decision for you. You have to learn how to do it. No. So how do you speak into those situations? So there are things that are on our plates and are exclusively our responsibility. You know, there are various acts and legislative things around the country. I mean, that you, you're the one who's going to be responsible for diagnosing things. You're responsible for prescribing things. You're probably the only one who's going to be able to perform surgery. So you're going to have to make decisions. And ultimately, leadership is about making decisions. And so clinical leadership is about making clinical decisions. That's what you're lacking. To make good decisions, you've got to feel confident about things. And when you lack knowledge and experience, you lack confidence because that's knowledge and experience that backs up the confidence. And so I think particularly that confidence comes from not just reading, not just learning, but doing. And so it develops with time, but it can diminish with time. It can be eroded with experience, negative experiences as well. And I do think that particularly first jobs, I think that's why your selection on first job is such an important thing. Like I was, it wasn't easy to find a job when I graduated into college. So I've got a very different problem now to when I graduated. You know, Mo, you went to vet school in Scotland and there's not a million practices around that were hiring and there was a lot fewer than that that were hiring new graduates. I wanted to be in the, the greater Glasgow area you know, I had attachments at that time, which meant that would have been a good idea. And I went around every practice and contacted every practice in Glasgow and there were no new graduate vacancies available. People didn't want to hire new graduates at that time. There's still a reluctance, but people, you know, people are so very desperate now. And I got my first job. I'd actually, I did get a job application accepted and I was lined up to be working in a business called, it was Companion Care at the time. I'm not sure the brand still exists. It might have been subsumed into another brand just now, or it may exist. And I had a job offer and I was really excited about the job offer because it was the most money anybody had been offered at my peer group. And I felt great about that more. Oh, my ego was just pumped all the way up. But the reality is I was going to be learning. The thing wasn't getting built. It was being constructed And I was going to be learning from somebody who was a year above me at university and no reflection on them. I just had a little discomfort with that because I thought, well, what is this person? You learn a lot in a year for sure, but this is not a boarded certificate holding rock star. Not yet. They may have gone on to become that, but a year out of college, nobody's that. And I just built this this, this growing discomfort with this being the person that was going to be mentoring me. And I thought that's going to negatively impact my career. And honestly, if it had not been for the delays and the thing opening, then I probably would have taken that job because I was just on a track at that point. But the construction project got delayed, it got put back. And as they sent me through more information for me to learn, like the handbook, how I was going to have to do everything, my discomfort with the fit grew because it was very prescriptive medicine that I was being asked to do. Um, very tight guardrails. And I just thought, this is everything I'm not. And in the end, I said no to the job. You know, no reflection on the company. It just wasn't a right fit for me. And I've never been more grateful. And that gave me a problem because it wasn't job around. And then it was actually the hospital director that introduced me to a boarded surgeon working down in Newcastle. And that got me my first job doing general practice work. And I was working now with, you know, European boarded specialist, fellow of the Royal College, 
and with people who were studying, actively studying, or already had certificates in medicine, dermatology, imaging, etc. And suddenly I was into a place where I could get mentorship. Now, the cost was I was going to be working in a sole charge single vet site as a new graduate. That is not to be recommended. It's not for the faint-hearted. But I had innate confidence, too much confidence, to be perfectly honest. You would call that bullshit. Too much confidence is, is being able to bullshit, right? Or arrogance. And I don't think it was into the arrogance realm. I knew I was pretty hopeless at a lot of stuff. But I also felt confident I could make decisions and live with those decisions. But I had great mentors. And then the second job I went to down in London was an 18-doctor clinic. And I was surrounded again with people who had certificates or diplomas. And so I think this is the most important thing, that particularly for new graduates. You go into an environment, there's two things that are important here. One is you go into an environment where you have got access to the support in a timely fashion that you need it. Because some decisions need to be made there and then, and you must live with the consequences. But there's very few decisions where you are going to make the sort of mistake where the consequences will be very high. Like I think people focus on the decisions and seem to think that all decisions come with massive cost of error. And most of our decisions actually don't come with massive cost of error. You know, you choose the wrong antibiotic, you know, boo-hoo, one health are going to slap you on the wrist. and But it happens. Yeah. You know, in three years we'll all die from antibiotic resistance. No, but it happens. You course correct. You're not going to lose your job. Nothing's really wrong, gone terribly wrong in that moment. And the big cases where you've got to get the decisions right are frequently quite obvious. Like if you think about the collapsed animal, the animal that's been hit by a car, like th- those things are quite obvious. And then the confidence comes from, yes, having access to mentors, but learning the process of what to do when you get one of those big things coming through. And so almost all of the emergency situations have a process you can go through to stabilize that gets you to the smoother water of having time to think. Mm-hmm. You know, the trauma case that's coming in, you're going to make an assessment, you're going to put it on supportive care of some kind or other, and when it's stable enough to do so, you might take some radiographs. And that might be now or it might be a few hours from now, you're going to give it pain relief, right? But if you do those things and you stop losing blood, going into shock, you address shock, it stabilizes Mm -hmm. and you've got time. And if it doesn't stabilize and you do those things, it's a pretty high chance there was nothing else that you were going to be able to do for that patient. So learn some processes, find bloody good mentors that are available. And that probably means choosing wisely. And I chose my first job for the wrong reason. I chose because of money and I chose money because of ego. And I chose it because of scarcity to an extent as well. So there was an element there. And I was lucky, I course corrected. Because if I hadn't, and I'd have been learning from somebody who was a year older than me, who knows where I would have gone. And perhaps I'd be another burnout statistic now. So I think those things are very, very important. But I think what's also important is that as when you're taking on responsibility of taking cases forward and leading a case forward, you have to start making decisions. And you have to be able to live with the consequences of the decisions. But most things are not going to be overwhelmingly high in the price of the decision. And I think people think that they often are too often. They get too stressed about what are all the awful things that can happen. Probably not massive numbers of things and they probably won't happen. Yeah. No, I think that is one of the bigger 
challenges that I see just from like new grads who are coming out into practice, or maybe they've been in practice for a few years. And they literally just don't have the confidence to say like, okay, this is the decision I'm going to make. And this is why I know my own mentor, he would be in surgery with me every now and then as we were down the line. And I would do some things that were different than honestly, the one he had taught me, but it was maybe what I learned in vet school or another skill I had developed. And he'd be like, so why are you doing it that way? Kind of in a, a probing, like, let's talk about this. And I would give my reason and he'd be like, oh, oh, okay. Just because it wasn't the way he had taught me. But like through those little conversations, again, like I had a fantastic mentor, honestly, still do. And because of my own personality and because of those situations, it allowed me to say, no, this is what I'm doing and why. And I think to kind of delve a little bit deeper into like what you were just talking about, like, okay, how do you become an effective leader within your practice or even a micro leader? Part of it is like you have to practice these skills. You have to have a good mentor who can set you up for success. But honestly, even in those practices where maybe you don't have the best mentor, like physically on the ground, like you said, you can have kind of like a distant mentor, someone that you can call up, someone that you can text just to be like, hey, I have a question because maybe it's not the big life-saving things that you need to make a decision right here, right now. Maybe it's you have this case because the client called back and they have questions and you're looking at the lab work and you're like, ah, I don't know, man. And so being able to take that to someone and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And these are the reasons why. And then having the ability of that mentor to say, all right, walk me through, like again, that thought process so that you are ultimately making the decisions and learning how to stand behind your decisions. That's like the biggest one, biggest challenge that I see, at least in the couple of people that I've had as mentees so far in my short career. Yeah, that's kind of been that area that I want people to be able to develop the skills so that they can make a decision, they can stand behind it, and they can learn from it ultimately. Because again, that's where a lot of people, even myself, like you struggle, you just hem and haw, like even in a consult day, they'll be like, okay, what do you want us, how much, like how much sub-Q fluids do you want this pet to get? Hey, we need this to do this admit. Can you handle this drop off? Hey, we're three appointments behind. What do you want to do? How do you want to proceed? Like those are the micro decisions in the day that a lot of new grads struggle with <clears throat> because it causes that indecision fatigue. That's a whole other episode because we're out of time for today. That is a, a whole other area that I feel like we could delve into. Well, decision fatigue can wait for another day. Yeah. Indecision, you know, they say hesitation costs lives. As I say, I don't know where that saying comes from, but I think it's true. It's just make decisions and learn from the outcomes and try and make informed decisions, but make decisions. You know, I think that is what being a leader clinical or otherwise is about and you're not going to always make the right decisions but that's where mentors can help but there's no getting away from it the most important mentor you will have is your direct boss and that's the most available person they're the person you're going to learn from the most they're going to shape your entire career so choose that first boss wisely like invest time in your due diligence and then make a good decision and if it's a wrong decision then find a new first boss <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if you're getting to two or three years in your career and you're still not confident about making some basic decisions, I think something's gone wrong, yeah. very wrong. At that point, I don't think you can keep blaming a system. If you're two or three years in and you're not confident making decisions, what did you do to fix that? That's a lack of ownership of a career. Don't be that person. So if you're not able to feel like you can make decisions for the vast majority of things that you will see, and I'm, I don't mean get diagnoses, that's not the same thing but make decisions that you think are good, 
grounded in science decisions that will propel you closer to a positive outcome or progression even in a case, then you need to be in a place that helps you to learn that. As with every single episode, what is the end result or end statement? Find a good mentor. (laughs) It's literally like every single episode, that is what we're looking at. I think find a good mentor, but be responsible, be accountable for your own learning. It ain't all on the mentor or the boss, you know, but find a good mentor and take ownership for your Mm -hmm. learning. You're responsible now. As soon as you leave university, the responsibility is 100% on your shoulders for learning. It ain't on your mentor. A good mentor helps you learn, but you must be responsible for the learning. You're ultimately accountable for that. That would be my takeaway. That's like the mic drop at the end of the episode. So I think that's perfect. That'll work. Um, So we'll wrap it up right there, you guys. Thanks for joining again. Now we have a ton of other topics that we need to dive into further, like decision fatigue. So there'll be future episodes coming out. But again, thanks for joining this week. And until next time, y'all, see ya. So that's it for another show. Thank you so much to Dr. Mariah and her guests for today's tips. And if you're interested in learning more about what we do to support early stage vets in their careers, then check out my book, Sorry Vet Now What, or non-clinical skills training class of the same name. Until next time, take care. <laughs>